to the Legal LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I am the executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the October 2022 Law Notes episode of the podcast, and I'm delighted as always to be joined by Professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments both in the U.S. and abroad affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This month's episode will feature a focus on religious exemptions and the evolving definition of family from three very different lenses. Professor Leonard, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we jump in with all of our cases today, and I know we have a full docket, I just wanted to take a moment to pick up on some late breaking SCOTUS news. We now have an oral argument date that's been set for 303 Creative LLC. That date is December 5th, 2022. And of course, we will be keeping close tabs on what happens with the outcome of that argument. So stay tuned for more news on that. Our first case we're going to be discussing in depth this month is the update to the Yeshiva University Pride Alliance case. Professor Leonard, will you take us through some of the news and a deeper conversation where we left off last month? Okay, well, just to uh, remind people what's going on here, uh, Pride Alliance is a student organization that was seeking recognition at Yeshiva University. Uh, Yeshiva University is an Orthodox Jewish educational institution incorporated under the New York State Education Law, and it is... Uh, the undergraduate uh, college at Yeshiva that is concerned in this case. There are LGBT student groups that are recognized at the graduate schools of Yeshiva University, such as the law school, the medical school, et cetera. But there was no uh, recognized student group at the undergraduate school and not being recognized means you're excluded from all kinds of perks and benefits that a recognized student organization has. And they've been trying for years to be recognized. And Yeshiva has repeatedly rejected the request. So finally, they filed a lawsuit under the New York City Human Rights Law, claiming that Yeshiva University is a public accommodation, that under the law, they can't discriminate based on sexual orientation or gender identity, and uh, that therefore, their refusal to recognize the student group was a violation of municipal law. On June 24th, and we reported on this in the July issue of Law Notes, uh, Supreme Court Justice Lynn Kotler granted summary judgment to Pride Alliance, finding that uh, Yeshiva University is a place of public accommodation, that the law applies to it, and that its uh, claim for a religious exemption was invalid. She issued an order saying that they should immediately recognize the student club, the Pride Alliance. They immediately filed an appeal to the appellate division, and they sought a stay. The appellate division sat on the application for a stay for quite a while. And meanwhile, it's the summer. Nothing's really going on on campus. Student clubs really don't operate on campus during the summer. But as the fall term approached, the, the uh, administration in Yeshiva got increasingly nervous. They hadn't had any ruling on their stay. And then on August 25th, the bomb was dropped on them. No stay with the appellate division. They quickly contacted the Court of Appeals, asked for that 
uh, court to give a stay. That's New York's highest court. And the Court of Appeals, without any explanation, turned them down. The normal procedure is to ask the court which your motion is pending for permission to appeal to the Court of Appeals. But of course, the appellate division hadn't issued anything to appeal at that point until August 25th. And rather than asking them for permission, they just went right to the Court of Appeals, which turned them down because it's uh, procedurally irregular. So frustrated because fall term was about to start and uh, their procedure for recognizing student groups is an annual procedure and the deadline was looming. And of course, the application was pending for private alliance. So they filed a petition, an application for an emergency stay with Justice Sotomayor of the Supreme Court. And she gave a temporary stay on a Friday and referred the measure to the court the following week on uh, September 14th. The court denied the application for a stay by a vote of five to four. The majority consisted of Chief Justice John Roberts and Associate Justices Sonia Sotomayor, Alana Kagan, Brett Kavanaugh, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Right, so the three Democratic appointees plus Chief Justice Roberts and uh, Justice Kavanaugh. And although no one signed an opinion explaining the majority decision, there's an unsigned brief paragraph that they posted on their website saying, well, just a minute, basically they haven't exhausted their state remedies before applying to the Supreme Court. There is no final decision by a state court for us to, uh, to review their emergency motion to ask for either a stay pending appeal or for the court to treat it as a cert petition and grant the cert petition and proceed on an emergency basis to consider the case, which is totally procedurally irregular. Uh, there isn't even an appellate decision in this case yet. The, the only appellate ruling we have is the appellate division saying no, uh, no stay. And without any kind of opinion or explanation, they just turned down the application for a stay. The clerk of the appellate division advised Yeshiva, look, file a motion with the appellate division asking for permission, leave to appeal to the Court of Appeals, your denial of the stay. But uh, they, they hadn't done that. So uh, the court provides this brief explanation. The application is denied because it appears that applicants have at least two further avenues for expedited or interim state court relief. First, applicants may ask the New York courts to expedite consideration of the merits of their appeal. Applicants do not assert, nor does the appellate division docket reveal that they have ever requested such relief. Second, applicants may file with the appellate division a corrected motion for permission to appeal that court's denial of a stay to the New York Court of Appeals, as the appellate division's clerk directed applicants to do on August 25th. Applicants may also ask the appellate division to expedite consideration of that motion. Well. What did uh, Yeshiva do in reaction to this? They suspended all student club activities on campus while their appeal is pending at the appellate division. And uh, this caused some alarm to the Pride Alliance people because they figured their classmates were gonna blame them because uh, they, uh, they couldn't hold their club activities. This was partially mooted because the high holidays were imminent and yeshiva basically closes down for the high holidays. So for a three-week period, there is no real activity on campus anyway. And uh, yeshiva said, after the holidays are over, we'll tell them what we're going to do. But for now, no club activities. So the Pride Alliance people, and I think a very smart strategic move, said, we will not press 
for recognition under Judge Kotler's order while the case is on appeal. So you don't need a stay. So the, the whole stay application business is irrelevant because Private Alliance is not going to insist on compliance with Justice Kotler's order until the appellate division rules on the merits of the appeal. And they have an argument scheduled. I believe it's scheduled in October to have an argument in the appellate division, and they're going to expedite. So we will have a decision one way or another. But the thing that is really concerning about what the Supreme Court did is the dissenting opinion, an extended dissenting opinion by Justice Alito, which was specifically joined by Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, and Barrett, which basically said that yeshiva should win on the merits, which is totally improper. I mean, the case has not been briefed or argued to the Supreme Court. All they have is yeshiva's application for a stay, which they asked to alternatively be treated as a cert petition, and the response from Pride Alliance, which focused itself not on the merits of the case, but on the procedural reasons why the court should deny the stay, which were the reasons why the court denied the stay. But Alito jumps right in, first of all, of course, the party that files the application frames the question that's presented. The Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty is, defend, is uh, representing Yeshiva here, which is interesting because uh, Beckett is a Catholic organization. <laughs> Maybe Yeshiva couldn't find a Jewish law firm that was willing to take their case. I don't know. But uh, they frame the question as follows. Does the First Amendment permit a state to force a Jewish school to instruct its students in accordance with an interpretation of Torah that the school, after careful study, has concluded is incorrect. Well, when you phrase it that way, Alito says the obvious answer is no. A state does not have a right to force a religious school, uh, a Jewish school, to teach a, an interpretation of Torah with which the school disagrees. But that is totally misrepresenting Justice Kotler's opinion. She, in her opinion, said, look, this was filed under the New York, New York City human rights law. It's not under the state human rights law. It's under the New York City human rights law. The issue before me is whether yeshiva is subject to the public accommodations provision. And I say it is. They're incorporated under the education law, not under the religious corporation law. And they don't meet the definition of a religious corporation that's set out in the religious corporation law. And although there's a provision of the city human rights ordinance, which exempts religious organizations, religious corporations from being considered public accommodations, I don't think yeshiva fits that. Because if you look at their corporate charter under the education law, it doesn't mention any religious purposes. It says it would, they are incorporated for educational purposes only. They are not a church. They are not operated by a church. They are not owned by a church. Yeshiva is a freestanding university, unlike many Catholic universities, which uh, are a unit of the archdiocese in which they are located, that sort of thing. Yeshiva is a freestanding school that denominates itself as a religious school and therefore wants an exemption on that basis. Now, she turned to the First Amendment. She said, under uh, Employment Division versus Smith, the Supreme Court's case on First Amendment exemptions from complying with uh, general laws, uh, this would be uh, not be uh, a case where they can basically win an exemption. The Supreme Court has said generally organizations are not exempt from complying with laws of general application that are neutral with respect to religion. Now, you could say that the city human rights law isn't neutral with respect to religion 
to the extent that they exempt religious organizations from compliance. But yeshiva, according to Justice Cobb, is not a religious organization. She uh, rejected their First Amendment defense. Alito is signaling that at least he and the other three dissenters would agree with uh, yeshiva that it has a First Amendment defense. And furthermore, that if you look at, and this is coming back to haunt us, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, and the approach that the Supreme Court took in that case, said if there are any exemptions or if there's any discretion on the part of the government agency with respect to enforcement, then it's not a law of general application anymore. Employment Division versus Smith becomes irrelevant. And we've got a, uh, a case where the state has to show a compelling interest, and then they have to show that the uh, rule that they are seeking to apply to the, to the plaintiff or defendant, as the case may be, uh, is uh, the least restrictive alternative is narrowly tailored uh, to achieve the state's compelling interest without unnecessary burdens on the religious free exercise of, uh, of the uh, private party in the case. So Alito is jumping right in and saying, we know how this case should be decided, but it hasn't been briefed and argued to him. All he's got there is an application for an emergency stay and an opposition to it by Yeshiva, by Pride Alliance, rather. And then Yeshiva had a brief reply to Pride Alliance. All of this stuff is on the Supreme Court's website if you want to read these documents. But in any event, this is where things stand. The high holidays are over, just concluded. The period runs for about three weeks from uh, Rosh Hashanah through Simchas Torah. Uh, so that's done. Yeshiva is not being pressed by Pride Alliance for recognition. Uh, I assume I would have gotten a press release if they were, because Pride Alliance was spewing out press releases about this case over the summer. Uh, so if there was any development, uh, supposedly there are going to be negotiations going on because uh, some major donors to Yeshiva University are pressuring the university to reconsider its position. So we'll see what happens. Meanwhile, the appellate division at some point not too distant future, will rule on Yeshiva's appeal from Justice Kava's opinion. So we'll see if her particular analysis of Yeshiva's uh, position is correct. Thank you for the updates. It sounds like this case is far from over on a number of levels. Right. What you're describing in terms of Justice Alito's dissent is highly irregular, trying to make a decision on the merits without the case having been fully briefed. Are there any other Supreme Court decisions you've seen in the past year that take a similar approach? I'm just curious. Well, there, there is this situation that the, the so-called shadow docket, you know, courts, are, the Supreme Court receives applications from parties to take action without the case having actually been accepted for review on the merits or something. Usually it's a petition for a stay of the lower court ruling pending the filing of a cert petition. And there have been a few worrying situations where the court has acted in such a way as to signal what the merits ruling would be ultimately or uh, to, uh, to tip its hand. And this was most notorious with respect to the Texas uh, abortion statute that, that said you... Uh, Basically, you can't have an abortion after six weeks. And there was an issue of uh, whether a, a decision by the Court of Appeals holding it uh, unlawful should be stayed, uh, while the Supreme Court was, was considering the Dobbs case, which involved the Mississippi abortion statute. And the court really basically tipped its hand as to what was the outcome going to be in the, uh, in the Mississippi case by the way it treated uh, that, uh, that petition. 
And there have been other instances where they've allowed lower, uh, they've allowed various state laws that are being challenged to go into effect, even though a lower federal court has, uh, has said they shouldn't go into effect, uh, which was the case with that Texas law. I mean, the, the Fifth Circuit at the time said, based on the existing precedents now in effect, that Texas law may not go into effect. And Texas wanted to put it into effect. And the, uh, the Supreme Court, they signaled what was going to happen. And then, of course, there was the leak of Justice Alito's opinion in the Dobbs case several months before they issued the opinion. So uh, the Supreme Court is uh, become a little sea of procedural irregularity. Very troubling. Well, you mentioned Texas. Our next case is actually going to take us to Texas, still yeah. staying on the topic of religion, but a very different set of facts. Can you tell us a little bit about Braidwood management versus Becerra? Okay. This is a case involving the application of the Affordable Care Act's provisions on what must be covered by a health insurance policy to meet the requirements of the Affordable Care Act. One of the things that the Affordable Care Act put into motion was they took this consultative body called the Preventive Services Task Force, which already existed as a consultant to the Department of Health and Human Services. And they basically upgraded its function under the statute. It is to recommend which preventative services should be covered by a health insurance plan in order to qualify uh, as accountable coverage under the Affordable Care Act. And under the Affordable Care Act, everyone is supposed to have coverage for whatever uh, HHS has decided must be covered consistent with the statute. And the, the statute had a specific charge to this Preventive Services Task Force, which is made up of volunteers. It's assembled by HHS from among experts in the field of preventive medicine. And they meet on a regular basis and they review various uh, preventive medications, vaccines, prophylactic medications and things of that sort. And they decide whether it is uh, significant enough and important enough that it should be included in the list of things that have to be covered. And one of the things that the task force decided should be covered is what is referred to as PrEP. That is the preventive medication that uh, is given to people to build a defense, an immune defense in their body against HIV. PrEP has been shown to be very effective in preventing the transmission of HIV. Both uh, with people taking PrEP, both in, if they happen to be infected and they start taking PrEP, it supposedly suppresses the virus to the undetectable level that it can't be transmitted. And also if someone is on PrEP and they are exposed, the chances are very slight that they would become infected. So it's, it's been a very important tool. And the task force said PrEP should be included. It means if, if you are an employer and you uh, have to comply with the Affordable Care Act by providing insurance, your insurance policy in order to be counted as uh, meeting the standards has to cover PrEP. All right, so uh, Steve Hasse is a wealthy donor to the Republican Party, a conservative. Uh, his company is Braidwood Management Incorporated. He doesn't want to cover PrEP. He has religious objections to covering PrEP. He thinks that by covering PrEP, he becomes complicit in gay sex because uh, people who are HIV positive who are afraid of catching HIV want to take PrEP so they can still engage in sex without transmitting HIV or catching HIV. And he says, I would be facilitating gay sex, which is against my religion. I shouldn't have to comply with that. 
as a basis and, and under the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the government shouldn't be requiring me to subsidize gay sex or unlawful intravenous drug use because uh, people who are users of injectable drugs also, they want to take PrEP. Uh, and, and I don't want to be uh, subsidizing that either. So he says, this violates my rights under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And furthermore, I think this whole setup with this volunteer task force and everything is unconstitutional. I think it violates the appointments clause of the Constitution, which says that officers of the United States government must be nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and appointed by the president after they've been confirmed by the Senate. And these are just volunteers assembled by HHS. And furthermore, I think it violates the non-delegation doctrine because this task force is essentially being delegated the ability to make law, which is a legislative function. And uh, many, many people have, have said that the Affordable Care Act itself uh, delegates too much decision-making to HHS and to various agencies within HHS. Uh, this this was, uh, among other things, a basis of attacking the CDC's, some of its mandates during the COVID epidemic, that, that they were legislating and that they didn't have the authority to do this. So these three theories were put in front of, well, want to talk about judge shopping for a minute? They were put in front of Judge Reed O'Connor of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas. But they were filed in, his, in the Fort Worth courthouse. See, the Northern District of Texas is based in Dallas, but they have an extension. They have a courthouse in Fort Worth, which is near Dallas, but they, they don't have any uh, judge permanently assigned there full time. So from July through December, Judge O'Connor is the only judge there. From January through to the summer, it's Judge Mark Pittman, who was appointed by President Trump. Reed O'Connor was appointed late in his administration by George W. Bush. And O'Connor is known for issuing injunctions against Obama and Biden administration policies. So if you're shopping for a judge, he's a pretty good bet. He's been hostile to the Affordable Care Act on many, I mean, he has prior decisions evincing his hostility to the Affordable Care Act that he was going to declare it unconstitutional, all kinds of stuff. So uh, so they filed their suit. It's it's uh, Braidwood Management, and they, they recruited five other companies that agreed that they don't want to cover PrEP, and they filed suit before Judge Reed O'Connor. And Reed O'Connor did something that courts are not supposed to do. If you can rule for the plaintiff, on a statutory ground, you shouldn't reach the constitutional issues. You shouldn't decide constitutional issues unless first you've decided you can't give them any relief under the statute. So to follow that rule, he should have gone directly to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act asks whether this PrEP requirement imposes a substantial burden on free exercise of religion uh, we have the Hobby Lobby decision saying that a corporation can raise this as a, a basis of challenging a federal government mandate of some sort. And he does eventually get to that and, and conclude uh, toward the latter part of his decision that this does violate the Religious Freedom Restoration Act because the, although the government does have a compelling interest in preventing the spread of HIV, this is not the least intrusive alternative for them. Instead of requiring private employers who object to buy, to pay for PrEP for their employees, the government can buy it from the manufacturer and provide it. 
after all, we have we have a precedent for the government buying medications. Look at COVID vaccines. The government bought extraordinary uh, amount of COVID vaccines, basically occupying the market in the United States, and shipped it out to drugstores and clinics and, and vaccination sites and everything so people could be vaccinated for free. Because we had a compelling interest in seeing, getting as many people vaccinated as possible. And any barrier to that, including a monetary barrier, would undermine our compelling interest. Well, he's saying, why not the same thing? I mean, in the Hobby Lobby case, the court said that uh, it imposed an undue hardship on a corporation. Uh, in, in that case, it was a closed corporation with a small ownership group, all of whom had religious objections to covering contraceptions that were on the list from HHS that had to be covered under the Affordable Care Act. And the eventual compromise in that case was that the employer is not going to have to pay for it. It eventually had to be worked out and negotiated out, but the Supreme Court was dealing with the issue whether the Affordable Care Act was available, whether rather the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was available to a corporation or whether only individuals can raise a religious objection other than religious corporations, of course, like churches or you know, church schools or things like that. So the court said, well, a corporation can too. It was a five to four and the dissent, I believe it was uh, Justice Ginsburg who wrote it to say, just a minute, you're telling me that a corporation has a soul and has religious beliefs? Maybe a religious corporation that's formed for religious purposes, but a, a corporation that's a business, that's providing goods and services to the public, that's a public accommodation, basically. How about that? How can they have a religion? But the majority said, well, this case involves a closely held corporation. It doesn't involve thousands of shareholders out there. It involves these five or six individuals who make up its board and are its, its shareholders. And they have religious beliefs and they are basically the corporation. And so they can do it. Now, whether Braidwood Management is a closed corporation, I don't know. It isn't mentioned at all in the decision. But they are invoking Hobby Lobby and saying we have religious objections. And if he had disposed of it on that basis, it would be bad enough. But what Judge O'Connor does before getting to that is he takes on the constitutional issues and he decides that the functioning of the Preventive Services Task Force is unconstitutional under the Appointments Clause because he says, given the responsibility and authority that this task force has because HHS basically rubber stamps their recommendations. So the task force is essentially deciding what employers have to cover in order for their health plans to uh, satisfy the requirements of the Affordable Care Act, which means they are performing a quasi-legislative function like an administrative agency. They're not just some informal task force. And when, when an administrative agency can make regulations, the body that approves the regulations consists of commissioners or agency members or something like that, like the commissioners of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or the board members of the National Labor Relations Board. These people have to be nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate, because it says in the Constitution that officers of the federal government, officers, that is people who have the responsibility of voting on, of adopting policies and administering policies and being in charge, they have to be approved by, by the Senate. 
basically under the confirmation process. And these people weren't. And so as far as he's concerned, all the recommendations that the task force has made are invalid on that basis. Now, as to the non-delegation doctrine, the non-delegation doctrine says that when Congress authorizes an independent agency or an agency of the executive branch to make regulations, substantive regulations that are going to have the force of law, they have to, at the very least, in their statute authorizing that power, spell out in some degree of detail the bounds and the criteria and everything else. That is, the broad major policy decisions have to be made by Congress. They can't be made by the agency. The agency has to be doing interstitial rulemaking, you know, filling in the gaps or making concrete a more general delegation. But the, uh, the, do the delegation doctrine says that Congress cannot delegate the legislative function as such to that extent. But he says, and perhaps a little surprising, he doesn't think the non-delegation doctrine is violated here because he thinks the criteria set out in the Affordable Care Act telling the uh, task force what the, what the standards are for finding that a particular preventive medicine or vaccine or something like that should be required, they are sufficiently clear that as Congress has given enough instructions so the delegation doctrine isn't violated. So sigh of relief, set that aside. But the appointments clause, I mean, that is very questionable. You read his opinion and the government says, well, just a minute, these are not government employees. These are not employees of the agency. They're not commissioners. They're not board members or anything like that. This is just an informal group that's assembled by HHS as an advisory committee. There are plenty of advisory committees. There are advisory committees where people are asked and they, they meet a few times a year and they review various files and findings and scientific papers and stuff and they make recommendations to the agency and then the agency decides whether to accept their recommendations. But he said, no, 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 I'm gonna cut through all that. I'm gonna say these people, even if they're not being paid by the government, even though they're not employees of the government, these are doctors and university professors, you know, people uh, who, uh, who are doing research, medical research and stuff like that. And they're not employed by the government. And he says, I think they're officers of the United States. Now, I think that's a ground on which his decision could be reversed. But his Religious Freedom Restoration Act decision won't be reversed. Now, what he did was he issued this opinion on September 7th. And he told the parties, all right, now brief to me what the remedy should be. So he didn't immediately issue an order. He didn't issue an injunction. He issued a declaratory judgment. His declaratory judgment is that the PrEP requirement is, un, is a violation of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as applied to at least the plaintiffs in this case. It's not certified as a class action on behalf of all employers with religious objections. It's, uh, although there may be a, a class action motion pending, but he says they, in their motion for summary judgment at this point, they didn't ask for an injunction yet. And uh, the scope of the injunction is a difficult question. Should this be a nationwide injunction? Should it basically say that the work of this task force is invalid? I mean, the Supreme Court once said that the, uh, the work of the uh, National Labor Relations Board during a period when the president had made so few nominations that the board was down to only two members. 
And the, the court said, well, if they don't have a quorum, they can't make decisions. So all the decisions they made when they were down to two members are invalid, and they had to redo all those cases. But that, and that was the Supreme Court. So, you know, it's, it's uncertain what the implications are of this ruling. Now, this is in the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit's pretty conservative. Are they going to go all the way with Judge O'Connor of the government appeals? If they endorse Judge O'Connor's ruling, is this a case you want to bring to the Supreme Court as presently constituted? If we had a rational, functional federal legislative system, we could quickly repair the statute. We could, we could just say, well, the president has to nominate the members of this task force, and it's up to the Senate to confirm them. And then, of course, we'd have the problem, what if the task force doesn't have a quorum and, you know, what decisions are valid? But as it is, I mean, this, you got to read this opinion to believe it. This is one of those O'Connor masterpieces, uh, Braidwood Management versus Becerra. It's available on Lexus and Westlaw. I'm sure it's uh, probably available on Bloomberg Law at this point. I don't know how soon things get into the Google database for scholargoogle.com. Usually when I've looked up things there, it's only been cases that are officially published in Fed second and Fed sub, or Fed, Fed fourth now, and Fed sub third that are picked up by that pre-service. But basically, uh, people with, it, with access to the various legal databases can read this opinion, but it's, uh, it's a piece of work. I think his characterization of the task force is wrong, but you know, it's the ruling in the case right now. And unless it gets overturned on appeal, there it stands. And it, it leads in sort of a limbo, an important advisory uh, panel that plays a crucial role in uh, the enforcement of the Affordable Care Act. It looks like the decision is available on Find Law, just doing a very quick search. So even Great. if you don't have all the bells and whistles for legal research engines at home, all of our listeners should be able to access. Great. So shall we go to our next religious exemption case? Well, take us back to New York for our next which, religious exemption case. Which actually originally was a religious exemption case, but was turned into a free speech case. Very interesting. All right. This is the New Hope Family Services case. And I believe we've previously reported about this at earlier stages. This has been going on for quite a while. So New Hope Family Services is an adoption agency in Syracuse, New York, which uh, was started by a priest. I'm not sure it's a Catholic priest. I don't think it was a Catholic priest, but it was, it was started by a, a religious a reverend, you know, decades and decades ago. It's been in operation for a long time. And as a Christian adoption agency, it has always operated in accordance with the religious belief that same-sex couples and unmarried adults are not fit to be adopted parents, that the only suitable way of place a uh, family unit uh, in which to place an adopt a child for an adoption is a mother and a father, a traditional heterosexual a married couple. And they've been operating on that basis all along. They said, if someone contacts us who is not within the, the scope of uh, what is acceptable to us uh, based on our view of the family, we refer them to another agency. And there are private agencies that don't pose any kind of test. There are public agencies in many counties. This is a pretty big operation and it's been around for a long time. Uh, and for a long time, the law was on their side until relatively recently, New York state law limited adoption to married couples. And married couples, of course, until relatively recently were a man and a woman. But during the run-up to 
same-sex marriage, marriage equality in New York. During the period prior to then, there were changes, partly as a result of court decisions. The New York Court of Appeals uh, back in the 1990s uh, issued a decision saying that an unmarried couple could adopt. And in fact, an unmarried same-sex couple could adopt. And the legislature caught up with them and the legislature eventually amended the law. And the adoption law now says that a single person can adopt, uh, a married couple can adopt, an unmarried couple can adopt. And as these changes were made in the law, notifications were sent out to all the authorized adoption agencies in New York. In order to do adoptions, you have to be authorized by the Office of Children and Family Services of the state of New York. It's an administrative agency. And once you're authorized, you can uh, evaluate people who want to adopt and uh, the state usually it's a county, will refer children in need of adoption to you, and uh, you make matches, things like that. And uh, New Hope had continued to function after, for example, uh, the marriage equality law was passed in New York in 2011, and the, uh, the statute was uh, amended, uh, the adoption statute, but they just continued in their merry way until the state decided in 2018 to do an audit of all authorized adoption agencies to see if their policies were in compliance with the law. And the audit, of course, turned up New Hope's policy. This is not a case where someone had been turned down, same-sex couple or someone had been turned down by New Hope and filed a complaint of some sort with the office or with the State Division of Human Rights. So uh, the audit turns up that New Hope's not in compliance. The office corresponds with New Hope and says, hey, you've got to be in compliance, so we have to yank your authorization. New Hope found a valiant warrior on their behalf, Alliance Defending Freedom, our old friend, who loves to attack gay rights wherever it raises its head. So uh, Alliance Defending Freedom files suit in federal district court on behalf of New Hope Family Services claiming that their free exercise and free speech and freedom of association rights are all being violated by the threat from the Office of Children and Family Services to suspend their authorization and they will no longer be referred any children by the state. They basically would have to close. So they sought a preliminary injunction, which they were denied. Uh, in fact, Judge May D'Agostino in federal district court and Obama appointee uh, in the Northern District of New York, dismissed the case. She said it was clear the law is a law of general application. There's no First Amendment exemption. And she uh, rejected their free speech and freedom of association claims as well. They appealed to the Second Circuit, which reversed her. The Second Circuit said it was premature to dis dismiss these claims because all of them are at least plausible claims. And it's it's uh, said uh, is particularly focusing on not not just the religious claim but the free speech claim. They said that uh, there is a uh, a plausible argument that New Hope Family Services engaged in expressive activity when it is approving people and making matches and stuff like that. It is basically communicating that these are suitable parents and that this is an appropriate match and. This is compelled speech for the state to say, we compel you to do this for same-sex couples. We compel you to do this for single people. So there's a, a First Amendment expressive aspect to this case. Uh, the freedom of association thing is a little less tangible. But the Second Circuit sends it back to Judge D'Agostino and says, you've got to reconsider 
you know, we're going to temporarily stay any action by uh, uh, New Hope until you can decide whether to issue a preliminary injunction. And she issued a preliminary injunction against the Office of Children and Family Services last October, a year ago. What happened in September, which we're reporting on in Law Notes now, on September 6th, she issued her decision on cross motions for summary judgment by New Hope in the state. And well, the state, uh, the Office of, of Children and Family Services, which is represented by the Attorney General, of course, of New York. And she granted summary judgment to New Hope, but not on religious free exercise grounds. That's too complicated. That involves trying to decide whether there's hostility to religion, which the Second Circuit flagged as a possible situation in this case based on the record in the case that the, the office may have some hostility to religious objections to dealing with same-sex couples, for example. They, they actually cited the Masterpiece Cake Shop case on that. So uh, she decided just to avoid the whole religious issue entirely because she could grant summary judgment on the free speech. She, she took up what the Second Circuit had suggested and she granted summary judgment on the freedom of speech. But then it turns out that that wasn't the only lawsuit brought by New Hope. And this, this caught me a bit by surprise. It seems that in August, when uh, you know, there, was, there was press around the Second Circuit decision for Mandy, and then while, while this case was pending, a new case was filed because someone called up New Hope Family Services and said they were interested in adopting children. What is New Hope's policies? And New Hope repeated their policies. And this person turned around and filed a complaint with the State Division of Human Rights, saying that New Hope was a public accommodation and they were violating the prohibition of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity and marital status, which are all covered by the state human rights law because they won't let single people, they won't place with single people, they won't place with same-sex couples. So State Division of Human Rights started an investigation. They contacted New Hope. They said, how do you respond to this charge, et cetera? And New Hope called up their attorneys at ADF and said, hey, we got another case for you. So ADF filed suit. And because this is in the Northern District of New York and it's a, a related case, it was consolidated before Judge D'Agostino. And they, they asked for a preliminary injunction against uh, Letitia James, the Attorney General, because her office can enforce State Division of Human Rights decisions. Uh, they asked for against the Commissioners of Human Rights, uh, and they asked against the uh, District Attorney there in Onondaga County. They want a preliminary injunction that the human rights law won't be enforced against them because, among other things, they say, we are not a place of public accommodation. And even if we were, we have a First Amendment right. I mean, we have a First Amendment right under freedom of speech. All right, so Judge D'Agostino, now on the issue of whether an adoption agency is a place of public accommodation, we have a Supreme Court precedent, Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, which held the Catholic Social Services foster care program in Philadelphia was not a place of public accommodation. He said, you can't just walk into this agency and buy their services. It's a very selective process. People have to be vetted. There are criteria. You know, this is not just the general public buys goods and services from this agency. That's not a place of public accommodation. And she said she found that very persuasive. She said the Supreme Court's decision in Fulton is very persuasive. 
New Hope is not a place of public accommodation for purposes of the New York State Human Rights Law. And therefore, I'm gonna issue a preliminary injunction. And furthermore, she said, you know, freedom of speech. Uh, she issued this decision on September 28th. So I just ruled a few weeks ago that New Hope has a First Amendment free speech right not to be compelled by the government to express approval of adoptions by same-sex couples and single people. So uh, this is a religious exemption parading as or masquerading as a free speech exemption. And the two are so close and intertwined that you can see how this is happening. To the extent that someone is gonna have problems making their religious freedom claim, they can make a freedom of speech claim. And that's where what you said at the outset that we have oral argument on December 5th in 303 Creative LLP versus Alanis, same thing, or LLC versus Alanis. It's, it's the same thing. Uh, this is uh, someone who has religious objections to uh, designing uh, marriage websites for same-sex couples. And the case is going up to the Supreme Court, not as a free exercise case. Uh, it was petitioned as such, but it was also petitioned alternatively as a free speech, speech case. And that's the question on which they ran cert. So it's people with religious objections, if they could somehow also characterize the case as a free speech case, because what is involved is something that has an expressive or communicative aspect to the goods and services. And maybe they can uh, get in under the First Amendment freedom of speech. And under freedom of speech, if freedom of speech is uh, endangered or substantially burdened, then we've got a compelling interest test and a narrow tailoring test, which are difficult to meet when you have a general law of this sort. So there we stand with New Hope. New Hope, I think it, be, can, it can be said, certainly the state may try to appeal these decisions, but the appeal will go to the Second Circuit, which already reversed Judge D'Agostino once. So maybe we end up on bank in the Second Circuit and maybe we get different results, who knows? But this litigation is gonna, if the state wants it to, is gonna continue. If the state decides to just sit back and let New Hope do its merry thing, because there are other adoption agencies in Syracuse and. Part of her analysis of Judge D'Agostino's analysis was she said, look, there is no basis on this record to say that any same-sex couple or individual person who wants to adopt can't do it just because New Hope won't deal with it. There are other adoption agencies. There are public agencies. There are private non-religious agencies. It's not necessary to force them to do it, which was part of her, uh, her analysis here on the free speech issue. Which is the same problem with Fulton. Okay, sure, there are other agencies, true, but if your child is with the agency that says no, there's no other option. Right. Well, also, uh, there's another aspect to the opinion. The state argued that when an agency is approving somebody to be an adoptive parent and making a match, they are not speaking as an individual they are speaking on behalf of the state, which has authorized them, that they've basically been delegated this task by the state. They've been approved to do it, but they're really speaking for the state. They're applying the state's criteria, et cetera. But she didn't buy that. She said no. She didn't believe that this is government speech. I mean, it sounds like depending on the outcome of 303, most likely next summer, right? Just guessing on the yeah, time. A December case would probably not be uh, sometime in the spring or summer. Probably going to be the late June case that we've come to know and expect and dread every year. 
So depending on how 303 turns out, coupled with Fulton, this could be a very dangerous combination for recognition of expansion and protection of LGBTQ plus families. Yeah, definitely. We don't have good news this month. I know, we were doing so well last time around. Yeah, yeah. until, in, well, the Yeshiva case, I guess we got some interim good news there, but who knows how that's going to turn out. Well, I'm going to cross my fingers that maybe you have something of note that might be a little bit sunnier to end us on or an interesting final decision no. case. Not, no. quite, not quite funny, but, but very interesting. Funny, funnier. This is a case of a New York City housing court judge who became very creative. Uh, her name is Karen May Bakdeon. And she sits in the housing court. She's a former uh, legal services tenant lawyer, legal aid tenant lawyer. And uh, she sits in housing court and she's confronted with this case, West 49th Street LLC versus O'Neill, which uh, arises under the uh, rent regulations governing what happens if a tenant in a rent regulated apartment dies. Who gets the apartment? Does the landlord get to reclaim it? Well, the regulations say that members of the tenant's family who were living with them could succeed to the lease, whether this is rent control or rent stabilized, can succeed to the lease. All right, we have a gay man, Scott Anderson, who was a rent regulated tenant at a building operated by West 49th Street LLC, who passed away. A man had been living with him for the past 10 years named Marcus O'Neill, who claimed that he should have a right to stay as a same-sex partner. You don't have to be married. The definition of family per the Brashi decision by the New York Court of Appeals dating back to 1989, which was the first US appellate decision to recognize a same-sex couple living together as a family for any legal purpose. They said, well, you know, if they have a familial type relationship and they're living together and at the time same-sex couples couldn't marry, we should protect them as well. So he's claiming that, but the landlord, the landlord said, no, no, he's not a family member. He's just a subtenant or a roommate. He doesn't qualify because we found another man who claims to be the life partner of Scott Anderson, a fellow named Robert Romano, who doesn't live in the apartment. Robert Romano and, and Anderson, Romano gave an affidavit uh, which the landlord introduced, stating under oath that he and Anderson were same-sex partners. They'd been loving, in love with each other for over 20 years, that they maintained separate apartments because they preferred to live in separate apartments. But they were, and now Romano is not claiming the apartment because the regulation only extends to family members who were living there. And I think they have to have been living there for at least two years if they're not married. I mean, a spouse could inherit the apartment right away, but uh, a non-spouse uh, would have to have been in residence for some period of time. But Romano has not lived with the men. They had various documents, joint accounts. They traveled together. Uh, Anderson knew Romano's uh, family of birth. They, were, they held themselves out as a couple, but they didn't live together. But O'Neill says, yeah, but uh, I loved Scott Anderson and he loved me and we did all kinds of things together. And Many of, of our friends in our social circle consider us a couple, et cetera. And I was in residence. I should get the apartment. So uh, the judge says, well, what am I to do here? 
I'm confronted with two people claiming to be the uh, familial partner of Scott Anderson. Scott Anderson is not alive to testify and tell us about this. Mr. O'Neill does not have the conventional sort of documentation. They didn't have any joint accounts or things of that sort or joint ownership of anything. Mr. Romano wasn't living in the apartment. What to do in this case? I mean, the landlord is trying to get me to grant summary judgment and uh, to evict Mr. O'Neill. But I think there are contested facts here that have to be explored. And further, I think there's no reason why the law shouldn't be interpreted to say that a person could simultaneously have two life partners who don't live together. Now, why is Romano giving this affidavit to the landlord? Because he doesn't like O'Neill. He sees O'Neill as a usurper. He's not happy about that second relationship that, that Anderson had. But uh, so, and he has no claim on the apartment. He has no personal stake in it and as far as that goes under the rent regulations. Uh, so she says, we can have a triad here. We can have three partners two of whom don't like each other, but both of whom like the third, who likes both of them. And uh, part of her opinion is just uh, stating a lot of questions. She said, why then, except for the very real possibility of implicit majoritarian animus, is the limitation of two persons inserted into the definition of a family-like relationship for purposes of receiving the same protections from eviction according to legally formalized or blood relationships. Why does a person have to be committed to one other person in only certain prescribed ways in order to enjoy stability in housing after the departure of a loved one? Why does the relationship have to be characterized by exclusivity? Why is holding each other out to the community as a family a factor? Perhaps as in the instant case, the triad has chosen to closet their relationship from others. Perhaps the would-be successor is not out Maybe they do not believe their real family is open to alternative kinds of relationships. And she puts real in quotes. And ultimately, she says, do all non-traditional relationships have to comprise or include only two primary persons? Spoken like a true tenant lawyer. <laughs> I, I mean, as, uh, my remark at the end of the story is, you know, uh, she is no stranger to the idea of diversity of non-traditional family formation given her practice experience. So uh, I don't know, maybe the landlord's going to appeal this, but at this point, she's denied the motions for summary judgment. And she said, we're going to have to have a hearing here to find out whether the various criteria that are set out in the regulations apply to the relationship between Mr. O'Neill and the late Mr. Anderson. Mm, I'm hearing a lot of unanswered questions about yeah. the structure of what sounds like a potential V-shaped triad, one nesting partner, one non-nesting partner, whether this was ethically non-monogamous or polyamorous, we don't know with the missing testimony. But and the regulations absolutely forbid inquiring into the sexual relationships of parties. Absolutely forbid. No. That's, that's an interesting thing. You can't prove that you're a partner by saying we had sex every other night or once a week or once a month or like many long-term couples, rarely, if ever. But we love each other. We live together, et cetera. We, many, many are married. Some are not married. You might ask, why did he, why didn't Anderson marry one or the other of them? Well, maybe because he had two and you can't marry two people yet. Fingers crossed. We'll see. We'll see. So, you know, this is an oath note, but of course, it's just a housing court decision. But 
let's see if it goes anywhere. It, as of now, it hasn't even been officially published as far as I know. It's been published in the New York Law Journal, but I couldn't find it on Westlaw or Lexis. And, trial court, and, and New York trial court decisions, uh, they go in the miscellaneous reports and the Office of Court Administration decides whether they get published. So I think if this gets appealed, uh, and the appeal, I think, would go from, from housing court to the appellate term of the Supreme Court, not to the appellate division, I think. Because the housing court is part of the civil court, and, and appeals from the civil court go to the uh, appellate term of the so a panel of Supreme Court judges, but not appellate division judges. But eventually, if it gets up to an appellate uh, level, it would be a published decision, most likely. Well, published or not, this case has certainly generated a lot of chatter online. So thank you yes. for taking us in more detail in the facts. Well, Professor Leonard, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.